all of us, everyone here, regardless of where you stand with Jesus or the church or whatever, all of us, we all want to find a deep sense of meaning in our lives. Like we all do. That's, I think of why New Year's resolutions is such a thing of like, oh, how can I make this, this year better than the one previous? And, you know, we kind of find probably all the years are similar to each other. Um, but we have, I think, more than probably any other time in the world, we have more options to find meaning in what we do now than what we ever have before. 200 years ago, if you were a farmer's son, guess what? You're going to be a farmer. That's just not the case now. Um, we can be whatever we want. We can join whatever cause we want. We can live wherever we want, says an American who lives in the UK. And yet, we, I think maybe more than any other point in our history as people, like, I think we have like less meaning or we feel like we have less meaning than we ever have before. That's weird. We have all these options out there, but we're not, we don't feel like we're, we're really attaining it. We struggle to find meaning, but it is a struggle. It's a struggle to find it. And we find that exhausting. And so we take a break and that break becomes our life. <laughs> Viktor Frankl, who, um, if you don't know who he is, uh, he wrote a few famous books, but uh, he was a Holocaust survivor, a neurologist, and a uh, psychologist. The, one of his most famous books is called Man's Search for Meaning. It's, it's really great. Here's one of the quotes. He says, when a person... Oh, there it is. Not working. Let me see. <coughs> Negative. Well, if you could maybe just go to the... There he is. Uh, it says, when a person can't find a deep sense of meaning, they distract themselves with pleasure. I mean, is this where we're at as people? Surely we find ourselves distracted. We, we don't even have to look for it. We're kind of, we just, that's our default mode, distracted by pleasure. This was in 1946. They didn't have iPhones in 1946. So it's even worse now, surely. I think two big questions that come from this search for meaning that we have is who are we and what do we do? Like, who is our identity? And then, like, what do we do with our lives? And we're going to look at that first question this week, who we are. And uh, the next one we're going to look at next week, uh, what we do stuff. And we hope that this will frame how we live as a church and has, how we keep the main things the main things. Because I think it's so easy to get distracted on things that are important but not really as important as like, the main thing. So this week we're going to talk about who we are. Um, the reason why we're doing that before we talk about what we do uh, is because identity comes before action. It, it, it sure, it ought to anyway. Like, I'm a dad, therefore I parent Colin. I don't find some random kid on the street and try and parent him and become his dad. Like, that's really weird and freaky. Who we are comes before what we do, or who we are should come before what we do. Now, if, so if we're not firm on who we are, if we don't know who we are, if we have a question about our identity, our lives are going to be all over the place because we're going to be trying to be working out of all different kinds of identities, all, like patching this, patching this, patching this. We'll be working from false selves, doing things that don't really come from who we are. So if we don't know who we are, how can we know um, like what we're spending our life on? How can we know that we're spending our life on what matters? I think we always try to work towards some kind of identity, like I'm a good person. Well, why am I a good person? Because I do good things. Well, how many good things do you do? And how good are those good things? And do they offset all the bad things that we probably all do? And is that all it takes to be a good person, just to do like, good things in your own kind of definition? I think generally, all of us, we all have an identity disorder because we don't know who we are. And then that also leads to a meaning disorder. We don't really know like, how to get the most out of our lives. And by ourselves, we just chase our tails. So what God does, though, in order to rescue us from all of that, because that sounds like a great way to expend a lot of energy and not actually do anything, God wants to rescue us from that. He, what, and how he does that is he gives us an identity. And the identity he gives us is far greater than anything we could work out on our own. Now, this book of 1 Peter, 
um, it's actually the first or second, there's two of them, was written to Christians who were suffering for their faith, mostly in the area of Turkey. Uh, and they were mostly, the people that he's writing to were mostly living outside of the country they were born in. So they were like literal immigrants or exiles. That's how Peter starts his book, uh, this letter, uh, in 1 Peter 1, 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world, scattered throughout all these kind of areas. And so he's like already writing to people who were, um, who are God's people, God's elect, as, as Peter says, who are scattered through all these kind of different places. He lists like loads of different places. Exiles is what another translation says. So these people were living the immigrant experience and probably not always feeling connected to other believers because they were scattered around. Um, they were experiencing that the Christian life is a difficult one, it's like just like us. It's not easy to, do, to live this life that we have. So in this section of 1 Peter, we're going to see how through Jesus, we, like Peter's original audience, are special together, how we're different together, and how we're free together through these verses. So we're going to be in the same um, section uh, next week as well. So let's just get this um, to this first topic here, how we together are special together. We're God's special possession. If Whenever I... Yeah, thanks, Will. Um, so what God does, he takes us on a journey from being nothing, from being isolated... To be, from being disconnected to being the special people of God. We are nobodies who've become somebody. So we get this, this progress from being nobody to the people of God. So in verse nine, um, he's, this is how we were nobody. Uh, we were in darkness. The very end of verse nine, God's called us out of this. Where were we, where did we get called out of? We got called out of darkness into his wonderful light. So we were living in darkness, but since we didn't know anything different, we thought that was normal. It's like my dad. Like, if you know anything about my story, my, uh, me and my dad have a very difficult relationship, if, if you could even call it a relationship at this point. But my dad was kind of evil like, growing up. He would use his power to kind of show that he was the powerful one in our family. I thought all dads were like that just because I didn't know what dads were like. And so once I got older and I realized, oh, some dads actually like, care about their kids? Like, that was like a revelation to me. Dads are just horrible people. I didn't know what, like, just because my only experience of, of a dad was a really poor one. And so, but when I grew up, I realized it wasn't the deal. And I think um, what I learned from that is just because that's how things are doesn't always equal how, that's, how things ought to be. Just because we live the life in a certain way doesn't mean our lives are supposed to be like that. And verse 10 says that we were not a people. Peter says, once you were not a people. That means you don't have a family. It means disconnected. It means orphaned. Before knowing God, we weren't just in the dark thinking that the darkness is normal, we're also, we're not a people. Being not a people means you're without family. I think we've all had experiences of how this world has been more than just let us down, but has left us by ourselves, left us lonely. Being orphaned is being disconnected from the people who ought to know you and love you the most. That hurts. I think we've all had experiences of being orphaned. So if what Peter is saying is true, if before God does all his stuff, where people who are in darkness and people who have been orphaned, like where does that leave us without God? It's just pretty clueless, leaves us pretty useless. Like people who are completely lonely and disconnected and, not, and also in the dark, are, they're not kind of, if they do stuff, we can't really expect very much to come out of that. But notice how Peter starts verse nine. He says, but you, and then lists a whole bunch of things. That's how we were, but that's not who we are. He's writing to people who have put their trust in Jesus. He's writing to people who used to be that way, but they aren't that way anymore because of what God's done. 
So for any of us, for all of us who, who follow Jesus, what does it say about who we are? Well, he says that we were nobody, but that we became something, a, a special people together. That's what it says in verse nine. Um, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of one. Uh, a royal priesthood, a chosen people that belong to God. There's another translation that says God's special possession. For God to have a special possession. But God owns everything. What, like, wh- why would that, what makes something more special than not? Um, like I have, I own a bunch of musical instruments. I have like a saxophone, a melodica, drum machines, a concertina. You know what that is? Kind of like an accordion, but like less intricate, easier to play. Um, I have all bunch of like these really weird instruments. Um, but my guitars, those are my special possession. Like I care for them more. They're protected more. They have like decent cases. They're not just kind of thrown around. I don't let Colin like play on my guitars or if, if he does, he's like sitting right next to me. If I loan them out to people, I loan them out to people who I really trust. I enjoy the guitars more. They're my special possession. I have all these instruments, but there's some instruments that are set apart as special. Exodus uh, 15, or 19, five through six says this about God. This is God speaking to us. says, although the whole earth is mine, you, who's talking about his people, will be for me a kingdom of priests and a, whole, uh, and a holy nation. That means we were in the darkness, past tense. We were orphaned, past tense. Present tense, you are God's people that he enjoys, that he loves, that he protects, he cares for. Not when you do something good because you're not really that impressive to God, the things you do. Sorry, like you might think you're great, but God doesn't love you for the great things that you do. He, does, he loves you for the people who you are. It's just who you are as God's human being. Now notice uh, the focus here uh, and all the headings we'll have together in the word is you are special together. You're not just special separately and you happen to come together for a few meetings and then kind of live out your separate individual sporadic lives. I think in our hyper-individualistic and isolated society, we're fed a lie that we can be special by ourselves. And then we wonder why so many people experience loneliness. You can be special just as you are. You don't need anybody. And then you're like, wow, I'm terribly lonely. One commentator said this, the emphasis throughout this, um, this letter, really, is collective. The church as a communal unity is the people, the priesthood, the nation. These are all like, uh, metaphors for groups of people rather than each Christian being as such. So this emphasis is typical of the New Testament in contrast to our far more individualistic concern in the present. See, the West tends to focus on individuals relating to God, while Peter and the rest of the New Testament was more conscious of people becoming part of a new communal entity that is chosen by and that relates to God. Basically, what this means is we get to be something bigger than ourselves. And not just like when we choose to, and not just like on Sunday mornings for a couple hours, but like for who we are, our identities. It's a communal identity. Now, how does, how does this happen? Um, well, says, uh, Peter uh, says this here in verse 10 is through receiving mercy. Now, how do we do that? How do we receive mercy? What does it take? What are all the, the little boxes to tick in order to get that receiving mercy thing? It's just receiving. It's just this, open hands. What do we, like, how do you receive a gift? You just kind of receive it. You don't have to do anything because it's a gift. <coughs> it's a passive action. God's the one who's doing the work. So how does this work? Well, we come as lonely people in the dark, separated, orphaned, with open hands to a God who gives us a family, who gives us meaning, who brings us in the light and calls us his own special treasured people. Now, nobody wants to be a nobody. We all strive after being somebody. Nobody wants to be forgotten or overlooked. Have you seen the movie Rocky? It came up 
who was I talking to on the walk? I was talking to somebody about the movie Rocky. They were like, oh, I've never seen that, because, oh, Mike, you're not even someone who's like, I'm way older than, um, <laughs> only slightly older than. Uh, there's that line from Rocky, I could have been a contender. Like, he just wanted to, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Rocky by now, sorry. Um, he didn't even want to win. He just wanted to be like, on the stage of people who, were, who could fight at a certain level. He wanted some kind of like status, some kind of recognition. Or if you've ever seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, Delmar, one of the, I love that film, but one of the characters in that film is like, uh, I'm probably gonna butcher, I think it was something like, you ain't no kind of man unless you ain't got no land. Which, taking all the double negatives and all the things, basically, you're only a man if you have land. Some level of status, some kind of like, this is what, what it means to be a man, what it means to, to, to matter. There's probably lots of other famous quotes from movies that are too old for most of us here to have seen. But the truth that we learn from Peter's letter here is we're destined to be nobodies if we, by ourselves, strive to be somebody. The good news is we don't have to do that. We don't have to spend all the energy of trying to make our mark in the world. Those can be really great causes, but if that's the ultimate cause, we're just going to be let down. We don't have to spend all that energy trying to be somebody. The way to be somebody, the way to matter, is uh, the consequence, uh, the way to be someone of consequence is primarily something passive. It's receiving mercy. We are the passive uh, benefactors. Not because we've been important to God because we've done great things, not because you've been part of planting a church, not because you lead a missional community or preach a sermon, not because you thrive at work or you have a job or a great family or have many kids. I mean, all those things are great, but that's not like the ultimate thing we could hang all our meaning on. The difference between being nobody and being somebody is receiving mercy, of which we've had no part. This sounds great, and we read these words, now we all nod our heads, but we know our lives don't really match up with that. There's a great quote from Stephen Fry. It says, you are who you are when nobody is watching. Hmm. If we grasp what it means to be God's possession, no, not just his possession, God's special possession, that would change how we choose to spend our time. That would change how we choose to spend our energy. It would change how we are when nobody is watching. There's that phrase, um, apple of my eye. Have you, have you, you've probably heard that phrase. It's basically from being so close to somebody that they're like, you could see your reflection in their eyeball. Like that's really, really close. That's like maybe uncomfortably close. <laughs> that's like Colin in the morning at 6.45 telling me about what he's gonna do that day kind of close. I'm not thinking of the beauty of seeing my son's reflection. In the, you know, I'm just not thinking of that. But this is how close God gets to us. This is how much we matter to him. He looks at us and says, this is my daughter. I'm so happy with her. This is my son. I'm so happy with them. Did you know that like, you are not a letdown to God? I feel like that a lot. Uh, maybe you got, I don't know if you guys struggle with that. You're not a letdown to God. God's actually excited to be around you, to know you. He's not disappointed with you. Like before anything, before we do anything, God is not disappointed with you. He loves you. Before we do anything, good or bad or all the things in between, we are already special to him, even if you don't feel that way yourself. So we're special together, but we're also uh, different together. So Peter, from the beginning of his letter, he's writing to exiles, people who are scattered kind of throughout Asia, living in places different from where they were born. And God takes us on that journey of being foreigners and exiles, uh, people who aren't at home, to being a holy nation and a royal priesthood. These is, we're going to look at those two things here in a second and um, explain why that's actually a good thing. But first, uh, just I, I want to touch on the fact that we are foreigners and exiles. Like that's, that's who this letter is written to, is people who are not where they should be, in air quotes. He's identifying with the experience of immigrants, 
They're literally spread apart. Few of them live where they were born. Now, as an American living in the UK, I know what this experience is like, but you do not have to be an immigrant yourself in order to understand what this is, what Peter's getting at here. I mean, have, have you ever um, felt weird opening your Bible in a coffee shop and reading? Just kind of, or have you maybe like put it in a certain way that maybe nobody can see kind of exactly what you're reading? Like, oh, they're gonna think I'm weird. Or what about, um, have you ever had to double think what you're trying to say to somebody because you as a Christian, a Christian believe something and you want to express something that you think really matters to this person, but you want to do it in a way that they're going to understand and receive, not in a weird kind of Christian way. So you have to kind of basically like translate in your head to a different language. You're not exactly sure like, what you feel. Is like, will they understand it? Will they kind of interpret me a certain way? How many of us have been surrounded by people only to feel lonely and to, under, to kind of get the idea that nobody really gets us? All of us have. That's what it means to be an immigrant every day. That's what it's like. No one really gets you. God takes people who are lonely by themselves and brings them together. So if you're a believer, you are now on this world living in a place that's outside where you have been born. You are living an immigrant life, spiritually immigrant kind of life. Navigating this place isn't always easy and we can easily feel how spread apart and separated we are, especially when we keep to ourselves. It's, it's, and that's just how it is. But we aren't by ourselves because we're different together. Peter says we're a holy nation in verse nine. Now, a nation isn't like an, in, like an individual thing. It's not like you by yourself, Will, are a holy nation. Like, no, like a nation needs other people. In order to, so our, our identities are included with other people. A nation's a people group. So holy means to be uh, set apart not like the rest. Before we talk about living differently, like we're gonna talk about next week, we are different people. This is our identity. It's just who we are. It's because of that identity that we live differently. We don't try and live our way into being a holy nation. Like, this is not gonna happen. Um, We've been created into a holy nation, so we're supposed to act like who we are. Now, there's lots of different kinds of different out there. Um, Different isn't always necessarily good. Like if you talk to, if you bring up the topic of coffee or 60s jazz around me, you will find how awkward different can really be and you'll find a really quick way how to get out of that conversation and go somewhere else. What kind of different does Peter say we are? He calls us a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. That, that's like weird because I'm not royal and I've never been part of an actual priesthood. What in the world does that mean? Well, holy, again, means we're, we're set apart um, by God himself. The royal priesthood thing, well, royal means you belong to a king. If you're part of a royal something, you belong to the king. And let's talk about priests um, for a second. The priests in the Old Testament were uh, walking temples and they performed temple duties. There's a, a photo of a, a priest on there. There it is. So basically all the stuff he's wearing from the turban to the breastplate to the specific jewels that he has, um, to all the, the colors and all sorts of things were supposed to represent um, the temple itself. We're supposed to represent God. Uh, what does this mean for us? We're not living in the Old Testament. Like, we don't have priests like this. Thankfully, we don't have to dress like that. Uh, what's the deal here? Well, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5, which might be on the same page there if your Bible says this. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what Peter is saying is even more than this guy in the Old Testament, even more than if you happen to be born into the, the priesthood in the Old Testament, we are priests in the New Testament, even more. We are walking temples. The temple is where God met his people. It's where the writers of the Bible said that God dwelled. It's where worship of God would happen. It's where the heavens met the earth. 
And that's who we are. This is us. God's decided to meet us where we are, to make his home within each one of us, to allow us to live in a state of worship all the time, and as we represent how the earth meets the heavens. And we don't even have to look goofy doing it. Though some of us might kind of... Anyway. So we are different. That's who we are. And it's a good kind of different. Though that may not erase all the strange awkwardness that you might have. Now, being different together um, will cause tension. Because being different from the world means there's like a tension from the world. It, it, to not expect tension means like basically to not have difference. So if we're going to be different from other people we're around, other things we're around, aspects in this world, it's, there, it's, there's going to be tension. I think that's okay. It's okay to feel tension. Tension isn't always a bad thing. Um, but sometimes you're going to get tired of it. Sometimes you'll be frustrated by it. Lots of times you're going to give in to it. Now, if we don't feel tension, though, we probably aren't living how we're called to. And when we give in to that tension, what we're doing is sacrificing our real self. We're not living authentic lives that we have already been called to. Not living out the good difference that we have means we aren't acting in line with who we really are. So it's not living out of our real authentic self. Have you ever been in a relationship or have had a job where you've had to like kind of put on this other persona that you're not? Have you ever had something like that? Like that is, man, I've had so many jobs in the past and few of them have been good. That's really, really tiring. Like you don't want, you won't wake up in the morning and be like, oh wow, can't wait to work at fast food and talk to people who are always angry because food's always too slow. Like it, it's just, it's, it's horrible. Like it's just not fun. It gets really tiring. But Jesus died for our difference. And the reason we feel attention is because either something outside of us or something inside of us is at war with what Jesus has already made. It's either something outside or something inside at war with what Jesus has already made in us, what Jesus is doing in us. That's why that tension exists. It's, it's, it's a spiritual war that's going on. This is the life of a people who are special, who are different together. And this kind of life is not sustainable by ourselves. It's not even sustainable by well-meaning, good people who, uh, who love Jesus. Because if we don't invite the Spirit to actually work in this, we're just going to fail all the time. We're going to give in to that tension all the time and we'll always be acting out of the false selves that we have. What we get to do is rely on God to work in us because only God can sustain what only God can create. So God's created us to be special together, uh, different together. He also makes us free together. Um, I find the talk of uh, freedom very interesting because it's something that we all listen to it's something we all want to learn more about, but it's also something we've had more access to than anyone who's ever lived before. All of us in this room are more free than anyone who's ever lived 100 years ago. Like all the things we have access to. And yet, uh, we don't really feel like we do because we're always looking for more of it. We feel like we're tied down still. I think regardless of where we identify, <coughs> class, um, in, uh, in, in gender, or, or we're all have access to more freedom, but few of us feel it. I think because we're tied to schedules, jobs, situations in life. People who are free, though, don't live in a constant state of feeling like you're in chains or burdened. If your soul is tired all the time, you may not be experiencing freedom. So in the time where we have the most potential for freedom, just like we talked about meaning, just like we talked about identity, we have the most potential for freedom, few, few of us would say we actually live lives that are really marked by freedom. Do we really like feel like free, unhindered, unburdened. I think maybe some of that is because we don't understand what true freedom is all about. But 
What God does is he takes those who were formerly slave, formerly burdened by slavery, and makes them free together. In um, verse 16, uh, Peter writes this. He says, uh, live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Live as free people because we are, but there's a certain way to live that out in a way that's going to keep that freedom going. Live as, uh, the takeaway is basically this weird kind of conundrum. We are free to be God's slaves. Uh, this version of NIV says servants. Some version of NIV says slaves. Some other things have servants or slaves. It's the same word in the Greek, servant, slave, etc. like whatever that might mean. So free to be a slave, it doesn't sound like freedom to be a slave or even to be a servant. That's not really like a massive you know, step up, servant, slave. So what's Peter going on around here? Well, I was thinking about this and I think one great example is think of the internet. It's amazing. What do we use it for? Cat memes, binge watching, porn, <coughs> buying stuff we probably shouldn't buy, scrolling when we should be sleeping. Like we, the internet is the most amazing thing we've ever had in our life. And here's what I learned from that. We easily squander our freedom. Like we easily give it away to whoever like will take it the quickest and we're, like we just we're not going to use our freedom in a way that's gonna keep us free. Freedom is something we easily squander, we don't make the most of it. Uh, and I was thinking about this actually the other night. Me, Colin, and Christina were making pizzas because I'm on this baking kick recently. My Instagram is now just baking. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so we made pizzas and um, we, all, we had three little pizzas. We all were kind of putting the toppings on and Colin got to choose whatever toppings he wanted. No, I didn't say whatever toppings. I made like a, an option of toppings. It was like you know red peppers and broccoli and chorizo and things. He, it wasn't like, I want to put my toy car on a pizza. Now, he didn't say that because he's not that dumb. Um, but if he would have picked something like, I don't know, I want to put, yeah, my toy car, or Dad, I want to put your phone on the pizza. Like, I'm not, like, I'm not going to let him do that because it's going to ruin the pizza. I want him to enjoy a tasty pizza, so I'm going to give him freedom, but like constrain in a certain level of boundaries. Those boundaries, that is, is a type of slavery. Colin was a slave to my pizza options that I gave him. <laughs> Now, but it was actually good for him because it made a more tasty pizza. If he were to pick anything, who knows what that would have been. Like, it would have been probably disgusting. But I wanted him to enjoy a tasty pizza, so he was a slave to my options. In the same way, God wants us to enjoy a good life. So he, in, in order to do that, he's given us boundaries, given us options of what that looks like to live the most meaningful life, the life that's going to give us the most kind of freedom that we have. So God gives us boundaries so that we can make the most of the freedom he's given us. And these boundaries are actually good. It's, if you are enslaved to something bad, that's really bad. But if you're enslaved to something good that always has your best, that is most powerful, that's always going to be working for your good, that's really good because you can't get away from that then. You're stuck there. You're enslaved to it, enslaved to good. So being free, truly being free, is opposed to evil because evil creates chains, and chains doesn't equal freedom. So it's good for us to not be bound to evil. God does not want us to be robbed of our freedom. So to be God's slaves means that God's going to be the top priority in our lives over everything else. He's the reason we do everything else. He's how we go about doing everything else because our life in him is our prime identity. Now, we might be a good father, a good husband, or a good friend. I mean, what matters most in that father, husband, friend? When things are out of priority, that wreaks havoc. Like if I choose to hang out um, and make Michael my top priority instead of Christina, that's going to ruin my marriage. I mean, it might be kind of cool for a little bit, but sorry, I didn't marry Michael. (laughs) If I choose to put the church like ahead of my family, which every pastor is tempted to do, that's going to wreak havoc on my family. I'll never see them. I'll never hang out with them. Colin will forget what I look like. It'd be bad. 
No other human is more important to me than Christina. No other group of humans is more important to me than my family. So when those priorities, when those boundaries get messed up, it's not good. I'm not being a good husband. I'm not being a good father when those things go that way. I'm not living in the joy of that kind of life. All the more important for how we relate to God because only God can give us the freedom that we really need and allows us to work out all the other priorities we have in our lives the way they were meant to be. Only a right relationship with God keeps that freedom from getting robbed and helps us in all the areas of our lives. So we don't use this amazing good news reality of finding real freedom to be hypocrites. We don't use it as a way to kind of do whatever we want. Oh, I like said I'm a Christian, so therefore I can kind of live however I want. Just because we know stuff about the Bible doesn't give us license to obey it. In fact, the more we learn, like it's kind of more of a, wow, this is more of a way we got to follow through. So if we just maybe, um, if we take a step back from all these kind of more minor points, I think the overall arching point, what we learn is this. Our identity is not achieved as Christians. Our identity is not something that we work for. We can't work our way to be the people we want to be. Whoever that, regardless of where you stand, we can never work enough to be the kind of people that we want to be. Nothing we do will ever be enough. Our identity, or an, an identity that's worth it, is not achieved, it's received, it's given to us. It's like if you lived with a father that you, you just couldn't stand, you actually, he actually loved you, but you hated him, you tried to get away from him, and as soon as you could, you, you left the house, and he would try and you know, still try and inject like, his life into yours by you know, leaving phone calls and voice messages and texts and things, still tries to keep in touch, but you're doing your best to keep him out. And then at the end of his life, he leaves you a house, a massive estate, and more money than you can even possibly spend. And he didn't do this out of obligation to you. He did this because of, out of love for you, because you are his son, because you're his daughter. And what you got through that inheritance was not something you deserved. It was not something you worked for. In fact, you were going the opposite. You weren't going towards this father. You were going the complete opposite way. But you were given it because of the identity you were given by that father. You're his son. You're his daughter. And now through nothing that you've done, you are more secure, more comfortable, and you have more than you can ever spend. And that inheritance was more than just a formality. It was for the purpose of you knowing the Father more. And this is also more than just someone, someone dying and leaving you an inheritance. The death itself was for the purpose of getting the inheritance, of getting to know him more. Jesus had to die. The only way we would get it is if Jesus died. And by get it, I mean receive it and also understand it. He had to die for us to get it. See, God loves to give mercy. He loves to lavish what he has on his children. So if you're his daughter, if you're his son, you're the passive benefactor of God's action, which is really good news because God does a lot of really good things for us. See, the father sent the son and Jesus himself went into the dark so we wouldn't stay there. He, he uh, was left orphaned by everyone on earth. Everyone left him, really. And much more importantly, while on the cross, he was separated from the father, from his father, something he never experienced in eternity past. Jesus was the ultimate immigrant, coming from perfect eternal love of the Trinity and down to earth to us. Jesus made himself a slave, a servant for us, so we would experience freedom that he experiences with the Father and the Spirit. And this is why the cross really matters. This is why it matters for us today. Not just in the past or in the future, though those are both true. This is why it matters for us today today because it's how we're rescued from a clueless and a useless life in the dark. It's how we're rescued from a lonely life. It's how we're rescued from living for anything less than the goodness that we really deserve as human beings made in God's image. 
It's how we're given a life of freedom together. And so the Father sent the Son, and the Son and the Spirit send us, not as lonely, isolated people who are slowly wasting away, but we as God's people are special together, we're different together, we're free together. And we're called to live in this world, called to work for the good of this world, but we're not called to get our worth from it. Which means we get to work for the world all the more because we're not kind of leeching from it, not like vampires trying to get our good from it. Because we have something far better than this world. And this is who we are as followers of Jesus. This is something we don't often remember well. I mean, the Psalms are full of like, the Psalms are basically like the, the songbook of Old Testament Israel, basically full of uh, directives to remember. Remember, remember, let me give you a look at how often the word remember comes up. And these are people who saw God do like crazy, miraculous things in front of their eyes and they forgot like next week, just like us every single time. So we need to remember this. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So we come up here with the empty hands that we have, knowing that God has given us mercy and we ask God to continue to fill us. Now, if what we talked about here isn't something you've experienced yet, we don't want you to come and do something that you don't believe in. But if you want to take the first step, this is a great way to start, even if you don't have it all figured out. And we don't have, you don't have to be a member of Redeemer to come and remember and celebrate with us. Everyone comes up here and there's only one requirement, asking God uh, to fill our empty hands with his mercy. For us to understand all the mercy he's already given us as people who've received his mercy. The bread, uh, there's nothing special about this stuff. It's just bread, it's just juice or wine, but it's a symbol of what Jesus has done. And the bread is a symbol of Jesus's life being broken so that ours wouldn't stay broken. And the juice and the wine is a symbol of Jesus's blood that was poured out so that all the punishment that we deserved through all the brokenness we bring wouldn't be on us, but it would be on him. So he took all of, our, uh, all of, our, all of the judgment we deserved, all the punishment we deserved, he took it on himself. And now when we eat, when we drink, we don't drink wrath. We don't drink all the bad stuff. We get all the good stuff, all the mercy that God's given us. Now, this doesn't actually do anything, of course. This is just like a, a celebration of who we are, of our identity in Jesus. And as we come up, let's come up in the thankfulness of being found by such a great God who makes people who do, didn't deserve it. We're not really fantastic in ourselves. We know that if we're honest. But God sees something different because he created us and he knows us. He created us in his image and that really matters to him. And he loves to lavish his love on us. Let's pray to him.